ask a few people in our church, if we could break free from this debt, how they would feel God would expand our mission and service. And also, we would like for you to think about that. How would God work through this church to bring more people to Christ? Um, I'm involved with the um, funeral dinner, and a lot of times in the kitchen there's some things that we need. And then again, I also have a Bible study, and um, we have to pay for our own materials, and it would be nice if the church could pick up part of that cost. And then my other heartfelt mission is uh, the Noah's Ark church, Noah's Ark preschool. And we are losing a lot of our children because they can go to public school absolutely free. And the program is okay, but it's not as good as ours. And people that are wanting their children in a Christian atmosphere for preschool have it here, but they could stand some help on the cost. By having that debt retired, obviously we could pursue new ideas, new missions, new ministries within the community. Um, and just like any other organizations, if you don't have the finances to do that, you can't pursue those things. And if we didn't have the added debt, we could pursue uh, different ways to draw in younger families. Um, we all know that we have lost pillars of this church in the last couple of years and uh, bringing in some younger families would be a wonderful thing. It seems like we'd probably head towards helping people in the community more um, in other communities going around doing more mission trips maybe helping people within the church more if they need I it. think if we didn't have a, a debt over our shoulders we could serve the widows and orphans as we're called to do. Elwood is a um, town that struggles with poverty and I think if we could feed more children and clothe more children and people in need, we would do that because that's our heart. And without a burden of debt over us, we could take care of people in need in this city. Um, when I think about that question, I can only tell you how Cheryl and I have been led. And there are three specific passages that do come to mind. The first is from Matthew 25, and Cheryl will speak to that. Um, one of Mother Teresa's favorite texts in the Bible, which she often quoted to support her ministry to the poor, was in Matthew 25:4. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The second passage is also from Matthew, and it's known as the Great Commission, which is in Matthew 28. It was the last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he rose into heaven. And that is, go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is obviously the calling of the church and what is intended to do. The third and final passage I'd like to refer to is in James chapter 1, verse 27. And that is religion that our God, our God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look for orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You've heard... Uh, from some other people, and I would like to give my answer to that question. I feel that God would use this wonderful facility to build people up in this community, to educate people in this community, to help them to better their lives, and ultimately bring them to Christ. I think that God has blessed us in this community to do His will and His work. Uh, thank you, and I just uh, appreciate you listening.
This will all come together on Celebration Sunday, May 20th, when we're going to have one single worship service followed by a special celebration dinner uh, in the fellowship hall. And so we ask that you prayerfully consider uh, what you can do to be part of this, uh, read the information that we've provided, uh, come to one of the information meetings if you'd like to have further uh, information or ask questions about it, and we'll make this happen together. So we appreciate your, your participation in that. Well, last Sunday we had a wonderful celebration of Easter. I hope you had a chance to even either be here for worship or be somewhere else, but to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It reminded me of a very old movie. It came out in the 60s. So we're going to let you date yourself here. How many of you have ever seen the movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told? Look at all these old people. Oh my gosh, they've all seen a movie back from the 60s. I've, I saw it when it came out, but I was very young. I was a small child. And, uh, and I love that title, The Greatest Story Ever Told. You know, P.T. Barnum called his circus the greatest show on earth. But the greatest story ever told is the story of Jesus. But I couldn't help but think last Sunday, we had, we had a great attendance. We had good crowd. I know I talked to some of the other pastors. They were all up. They had, they had great attendance for Easter. But when you think about how many weren't there, how many in this community who woke up on Easter Sunday morning and it was just another day, how many children were more excited about filled baskets than an empty tomb? And how many people went through the whole day thinking that it couldn't be true? It just couldn't be true. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's a nice story. But Jesus is dead. There's, there's a real skepticism about that. And it's a skepticism that actually began with the disciples. The scripture I want to look at this morning is in Luke 24. Uh, it's page 1642 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. But in Luke 24, starting with verse 9, we read an account of how the disciples received the news of the resurrected Jesus. It said, When they came back from the tomb, and they being the women who had gone to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with whom, or with others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of cloth lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Nonsense. That's what they thought the news of Jesus' resurrection was. And these were his followers. 
I think I know what the word nonsense means, but I decided to look it up anyway. I've been accused of speaking nonsense before. So I, I wanted to find out what it was that I, I did. Nonsense are words that have no meaning or make no sense. Or they can also apply to foolish behavior. You know, you can yell at the kids and say, hey, stop that nonsense over there. But the part that really interested me about the definition were the synonyms that one can use in place of nonsense. Other words that would mean the same thing. Let me share some of these with you. Instead of saying nonsense, you might say rubbish, gibberish, balderdash. I like that one. If you're Irish, you say blarney, hogwash, baloney, poppycock, fooey. I like saying fooey because it makes me spit in the microphone. So I do that. Malarkey, twaddle, gobbledygook, codswallop. Has anyone honestly ever heard anyone use the word codswallop? I've not. I guess somebody has. They stuck it in a dictionary. Tommy rot. And my personal favorite, flapdoodle. <laughs> Isn't that a great word? Flapdoodle. I think in future editions of the Bible, when they write this verse in Luke 24, it needs to say the disciples did not believe the women because their words sounded to them like flapdoodle. I, I, I think that would just really catch people's attention. Or, or codswallop. I kinda, that, that one's just weird. I don't know. There are only two other places in the whole Bible that use the word nonsense. Did you know that? There's not a lot of nonsense in the Bible. <laughs> Guess that's good to know. In Job 21:34, Job had you know what Job went through. Job lost his uh, family. He lost his health. He lost his property. He lost his wealth. He lost just about everything that he had. He was suffering mightily. And Job's friends come along and decide to comfort him. And the way they comfort him is by criticizing him. They come along and say, Job, you must have done something really bad to make God do that to you. And Job, in response to his friends in 2134, said, So how can you console me with your nonsense? What's all that flapdoodle about? That's what he said. He knew he hadn't done anything to anger God. He knew God didn't do this to him. He didn't know why it was happening. But see, he found their criticism to be nonsense. And then in Isaiah 44, 25, he says of God that God overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into flat doodle. Nonsense. So when we put the two together, they're saying that that the criticism of man and the wisdom of man both quite often amount to nonsense. 
And that's exactly where the disciples were. When the women came and reported that not only was the tomb empty, but we have seen the risen Lord. Rather than get excited about that, rather than jump at the opportunity to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, they were, became critical of it. We, that didn't happen. That doesn't happen. And they didn't believe it. Their human wisdom would not allow them to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had seen him bring other people back from the dead. But what happens when the life giver dies? Who is there to raise him? What was the kind of thinking that was going through their mind? And the question for us is, are we willing to believe in God's nonsense rather than man's wisdom? See, the problem with so many people is they look at this world and all they see is the natural world and the natural laws that govern the natural world. And they say, in this natural world, governed by natural laws, dead things don't come back to life. It's not only improbable, it is impossible. And when I have this discussion with people, I try to help them understand that you're overlooking something very important. There is not just the natural world, there is the supernatural world, which by definition means above and beyond nature above and beyond the natural laws that govern this world. And in that world, the dead can live again. And that is the realm in which Jesus operated, not only when he was on this life, in this life, but after he rose from the dead. The world says Jesus is dead. God says Jesus is alive. The world says he's gone. God says not only did he come back, but he's coming back again. The Apostle Paul addressed this really well. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, uh, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I think a perfect example of what Paul is talking about is the late Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was a British physicist who at the age of 21 was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, a very severe, uh, fatal, degenerative muscle disease. At the time when he was diagnosed, 
he was told he would not live past his 25th birthday. He died on March 14th at age 76. So for over 50 years, even though he was trapped in a body that could not move, with a voice that could not speak, his mind was still strong, and he devoted his mind to studying this world in which we live. He is considered one of the most brilliant people of the past century and certainly one of the most influential scientists of the past century. Stephen Hawking was also an atheist. He was one of those people that devoted himself to the study of this world and the things of this world and he could not see beyond this world. He did not believe in God. He certainly did not believe in Jesus. He thought that the cross and the empty tomb were nonsense. One time he was asked about heaven. Do you believe in heaven? And this is what Stephen Hawkins said. He said, I regard the brain as a computer that will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. He was right about one thing. There is no afterlife for broken down computers. At least I haven't found one yet. Mine end up in the recycling heap. See, the problem that Stephen ran into is he thought that the brain, the mind, was the most important part of a human being and that once the brain ceased to function, the person ceased to be. But in his narrow view of things, looking at this natural world and the natural laws that governed it, he failed to understand that there is a component of humanity that goes beyond the heart that pumps blood and the lungs that breathe in air and the brain that gives us our mind. We were created with a soul, a spirit. Back in Genesis when it said God created man in his image and in his likeness, that's what he's referring to. He's not saying we look like God or that God looks like us. He's saying we're in his image and in his likeness because we have within us that divine spark called a soul or a spirit that is meant to live forever when it's connected back to God. And Stephen Hawking was never able to see that. When I was reading about his life and, and his death, I couldn't help but wonder what someone like him experiences when they realize they were wrong. When they have to face the God they didn't believe in. When they have to give an account of their life before the divine judge in whom they denied 
their entire life. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us what they will do. In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Stephen Hawking could not walk in this life, but he can stand before God, and then he will bow before Jesus. He could not speak without the aid of a machine in this life, but he will be able to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on that day. I only hope, and I sincerely mean this, I only hope that in his dying moments, Stephen Hawking allowed the Jesus he didn't believe in to save him. And in that moment, he was able to see beyond the natural to the supernatural. And that he was able to realize who God is and what Jesus did for him. But the more relevant question is, what are we going to do with that? Just being in church doesn't make us a Christian. It doesn't make us someone who is under the salvation of Jesus Christ. Just knowing about Jesus, knowing about the cross, knowing about the empty tomb, doesn't save us. It's our faith in those things that makes the difference. He, he does it all for us. That's what grace is. He's done all the work. All we have to do is accept it. Imagine you needed a new roof on your house. You had holes in it. It was leaking everywhere. But you can't afford a new roof. And you go to work and you come home in the evening and there's a brand new roof on your house. You hadn't called anybody to fix it. You didn't, you didn't agree with anybody to fix it. They just fixed it. And there's a man standing in your driveway, smiling. And you get out of your car and, and he says, sir, I was just uh, driving by early this morning and I'm, I'm in construction, and I have a big crew that works with me, and I saw the condition of your roof, and I said, this man needs a new roof. So we just put one on for you. All I need you to do is to just sign this work order and say you accept the new roof. Absolutely free of charge. And the man looks at him and says, I absolutely do not want that new roof. I didn't ask for it. I didn't tell you to do it. Tear it back off. 
and put it back the way it was. What would you call that man? Foolish. You would say he's full of flapdoodle. That's what you would say. Nonsense. <laughs> and yet, and yet, how many people do exactly that with Jesus? He said, I could see the sin in your life. I know that you needed a Savior. You didn't ask me to come down here and save you. I did it because I love you. Now all I need you to do is confess that you believe in me and accept me as your Lord and Savior and I'll have you with me forever. And it's all free of charge. And how many people say, take it back. I don't want your salvation. If you're here this morning and don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you need to change that. You need to open your heart to Him and receive the one who died for you and who rose again on that first glorious Easter morning. It would be my privilege to receive you, to pray with you, to share with you in a confession of faith that says, I believe in Jesus, to arrange for your baptism, to put you on that path of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I invite you to come. As we're going to stand together, we're going to sing hymn number 256.